Hello and welcome to this week's panel edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On today's edition, this podcast couldn't stand Boris Johnson before it was cool. Now, are the Johnny-come-latelys of the Tory party and its voters finally losing patience with their supposedly election-winning cabbage patch kit? Johnson's approval ratings are down, MPs are restive. Is it the right time for Johnson to pick a fight with Rishi Sunak? Plus... Apple's new plans to scan iPhone photo libraries for possible child pornography. It sounds reasonable, but does it open the door to surveillance on other content, maybe from repressive regimes? And polls and surveys. Do we listen to them A, too much, B, not enough, or C, don't know? All that and more on this week's podcast. Welcome back to the Bunker Roundtable Edition. We're very excited about tomorrow's live show at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. We've held back tickets to ensure social distancing and the show's now sold out. If you're coming, don't forget your mask and don't forget a pen because there will be Bunker Bingo or will be revealed on the night. And if you don't have a ticket or you're not in London, don't worry, we are streaming the whole thing for free on Zoom to our Patreon backers. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast, sign up, and you get a link to watch the lot live on your laptop. We hope to see you there. There is, however, one tragic note on the live show, which is that our panellist, Yasmin Sahan, Atlantic staff writer, will not be there because you got pinged, didn't you, Yasmin? Yes, I'm living in March 2020 all over again. I'm really gutted. Are you, are you, uh, are you bored rigid yet? You know what? Because the weather has been so bad, it's actually been kind of okay. But yeah, I'm. I like I'm just getting sort of PTSD from classic lockdown. So I'll be very, very excited for Thursday at midnight or whenever it is I can I can get up. But thankfully all the tests are negative and by the grace of Pfizer I'm fully vaccinated. So I'm not actually go. worried. Yes, and Ros Taylor is there stepping in to, to to fill the gap. Now, Yasmin, you're our international desk and the situation in Afghanistan is looking especially grim. The Taliban have taken five regional capitals since the US and other forces withdrew. The Taliban have just rejected calls for a ceasefire. We're coming up to the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven. Is there gonna be a sense of like, you know, what was it all for? It was all for nothing if mm-hmm. Afghanistan is gonna go right back to the way it was. Yeah, I mean, I I think some people certainly see it that way, particularly when you sort of look at it through the lens of Western powers trying to secure Afghanistan and and really strengthen its security forces, which have clearly been overwhelmed on numerous fronts. Um, You know, I I think the US, I I saw one report has spent billions of dollars um, in, you know, the better part of two decades trying to sort of organize and and train and and equip you know, security forces both in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Um, so, you know, I, I think in that lens, it, it kind of brings the question of, did the U.S. leave them at a time where they actually weren't prepared? And, and certainly the narrative that we're hearing from the Biden administration is that, you know, we kind of had to take the training wheels off where, where they're equipped to defend themselves. Um, indeed, I was listening to to Rory Stewart, um, I think on the BBC the other day, who famously wrote a book about his time walking across Afghanistan. And he kind of framed it um, as, you know, as the U.S. and other NATO allies kind of pulling the rug out from under the Afghan people, Um, you know, and I think the muted response, particularly from the U.S. um, in light of, you know, the Taliban's recent victories has kind of shown that they're more or less leaving Afghanistan to fend for itself. Mm. And um, families of some 9-11 victims have told Joe Biden not to attend any memorial events this year unless Mm. he uh, fulfills a pledge to declassify U.S. government evidence that says there's a link between uh, the attack and Saudi Arabian leaders. What's going on here? Is it is it is it Biden bashing? Is there something real happening here? This is a demand that the vict that families of I think hundreds of 9/11 victims um, have been asking of U.S. 
government successive administrations for some time now. I think the reason that they're taking this action with Biden is because as a candidate, he had pledged to be more transparent on this issue. Um, effectively, what, what these families are asking for is for the U.S. government to declassify um, certain parts of the 9-11 Commission, which I believe was from kind of the, in the early 2000s, um, which they believe will implicate the Saudi Arabian government um, in kind of, you know, their their role in either supporting the attacks directly or indirectly. Um, and the Biden, Biden as a candidate effectively said that he would urge his Justice Department to err on the side of disclosure. Um, but so far, there, there have you know, there has been no such action on that front. So these families are a bit frustrated. You know, this is kind of the same thing that they've heard from, I believe, the Bush and Obama and Trump administrations on this issue. Um, and, you know, I think it doesn't help Biden's case, of course, that we're nearing a, a pretty, um, you know, big milestone in terms of the 20th anniversary. So if, if ever they were going to try to apply pressure, it would probably be now. Also back on the bunker, it's uh, writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. How are you? Oh, Andrew, nice to be back. Uh, so you take a keen interest in the Labour Party, as we know. Are you looking forward to uh, this fun idea from someone on the party's left that members should have a final say over disciplinary action against MPs? Uh, could they have anybody in mind? Is this a good idea? Yes. Who, who could the mysterious avuncular figure be they're thinking of who keeps accidentally falling foul of uh, the rules and disciplinary procedures? Uh, no, I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, it's I mean, there's just there's aside from the specific situation of the Labour Party, there's the you know, very, very obvious situation that when you've got things like disciplinary inquiries going on, which could be about anything from, you know, bullying to sexual abuse, you know, you don't want to sort of, you know, throw this one over to the crowd. You know, need to be very carefully uh, in place processes about this kind of thing. In Labour's example, particularly, I mean, if, if you've ever been to a Labour Party meeting, and I don't think they're unique in this in a political party, you don't need to go to many political meetings to realise that the people who are members of parties are firstly a bit odd, for the most part, and are often the last people that a party that thinks about social justice should be thinking of. You know, people who have time and the means to kind of give up evenings to sit around spending four hours talking about the minutiae of party process are generally not the most vulnerable people in society or people who we should be worrying the most about. But, you know, over the last decade, you've had this sort of inversion where in both parties, the tail has really started to wag the dog. Our special guest this week is Adam Payne, the Westminster and Brexit reporter for Politics Home. Welcome to the bunker, Adam. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, so the really massive news this week is the IPCC reporting to climate change, uh, which points to unprecedented changes, saying they're now inevitable and ir- irreversible. Inside the next 20 years, temperatures are going to beat the 1.5 degree um, barrier uh, of the of the Paris Accord. Disastrous consequences in weather are, are predicted. It's very hard to connect the enormity of this with kind of everyday political life, but Britain does have COP26 this year. Are you detecting any seriousness from Britain on COP26, short of Allegra Stratton saying, don't boil the kettle too much? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think that when you... I think what is true is that Boris Johnson wants COP26 to be a huge moment in history because, let's be honest, he wants to be the prime minister, the leader who is associated with it being a massive success, a major moment in history. And you, I think Alok Sharma who obviously is in charge of COP26, gave that interview in the last few days in which he said that 
Um, you know, we, we're approaching crisis mode, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think ultimately you need to match rhetoric with action and um, with with, um, with policy. And already there are Conservative MPs who are starting to uh, become a bit restless, a bit nervous, or indeed are, are opposed to some of the ideas that are being floated, whether they be um, to do with gas boilers or electric cars. You know that they're they're concerned mm-hmm. that this is going to be really expensive. And it's going to be felt by um, poorest people the hardest. Or these things, these measures are going to be incredibly intrusive on our private lives, and the government shouldn't be dictating what we do at home. Um, so I do I do think that the government gets it. I, I think I think the government at least wants to look like it's it, it's taking it seriously. But ultimately, the proof will be in the pudding, won't it? COP twenty six isn't far away, and. It, you know, at Paris, they agreed that we need to do something about this. And in Glasgow, they have to agree what they are going to do about it. And if they don't, it, it, it would be a failure, wouldn't it, I think? Yeah. I mean, what, what's the balance of influence inside Johnson's court? I mean, Carrie is supposedly very keen on the green stuff. Um, Johnson famously uh, agrees with the last person he spoke to, which is usually Carrie Simmons. What, what, what's your sense of where the balance of power is in, in the kind of inner court? I think that Carrie um, is clearly incredibly influential um we know that she is very passionate about environmental issues and the government doing more but you know i i wouldn't you you've, you've obviously got that classic um struggle between the treasury and downing street particularly a moment you've got a prime minister who wants to spend lots of money on various things um including a yacht um and but then you've got a treasury particularly under rishi sunak who despite being seen as this sort of um, COVID Father Christmas who's going to give all sorts of money to all sorts of people, he's actually very fiscally conservative and he wants to really tighten the purse strings as we head into uh, the next sort of, uh, I guess, the second half of Parliament is how we perhaps we should do it. So you've got that classic struggle there. The, the thing is with with this government at the moment, or, or at least his prime minister is, it says it wants to do all of these bold, sort of radical, post Thatcher post Cameron things but the thing is a lot of Tory party members a lot of Tory MPs don't actually like a lot of those things um, and as politics sort of shifts back to some semblance of normal as we start to talk about day-to-day issues and and we talk less about Covid how much this government can actually do or at least how much the government can deliver in relation to its many many um, promises um, remains to be seen. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Conservative Party and its voters. Are they finally getting fed up with Boris Johnson? The Prime Minister has seen his support fall drastically amongst grassroots Tory members. A recent survey by Conservative Home showed Johnson dropping 36 points in a cabinet popularity poll, with his net approval rating amongst members sitting at just plus 3.4%. On the other hand, Rishi Sunak continues to please the Tory faithful, with a net approval at plus 74.1%, behind only Liz Truss, who is somehow on 88.6%. So naturally, Johnson wants to demote Rishi Sunak. This fall in support for the Prime Minister comes ahead of inevitable difficult votes in Parliament. Large numbers of Conservatives are expected to rebel over vaccine passports and planning reform. Um, Adam, we've got to start with this story that Johnson tried to demote Rishi Sunak over, the, over leaking a letter mm. uh, on about border policy. What, what does this mean? I mean, you know, the, 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 the compact between Johnson and Sunak has been one of the, the few steady things throughout the pandemic. Yeah, it, I mean, it was an explosive story, wasn't it? And I think it was a story that no one really saw coming, particularly in what has been um, a pretty quiet recess. I mean, I accept that recent recesses have been quite busy for one reason or another. Um, 
But what does it mean? Well, I think there's a number of ways of looking at it, really. Firstly, I don't think tension between a chancellor and a prime minister is a particularly new thing. Um, mm. I, I think it, it was a case with um, Brown and Blair, obviously. Um, I think May and Hammond towards the end couldn't really stand each other. Is the prime minister feeling a bit insecure that Rishi is uh, the chancellor is so so popular with both Tory party members and and and, and indeed the public and I guess what I find strange about it is over the leaking of a letter I mean letters get leaked every day in government I don't, I don't know why this is such a uh, such a sort of toxic uh, sort of explosive thing but um I'd personally be very very surprised um famous last words if if the prime minister was to do more Rishi Sunak perhaps it was a warning perhaps perhaps hmm. that story was briefed as a as a warning to, to Rishi Sunak saying hey come on I Boris Johnson am the prime minister and perhaps you know there were some shenanigans which took place designed for uh, as a reminder for Rishi Sunak um, to to know his place. Where is this fall in support for Johnson coming from, though? Because, you know, um, th- there's been throughout the pandemic uh, just a, a complete mm. dedication to the idea that, you know, Boris is in charge from the Conservative side and, and that he's doing a great job even when he, he, he probably isn't. And suddenly these, these ratings are falling. Why is this happening? Generally speaking, I think, Politics now, as we emerge from the lockdown, hopefully for good, politics is now very gradually starting to return to sort of day-to-day issues like the NHS and social mm-hmm. care and housing and uh, all, all those, you know, those bread and butter things. And I think the vaccine bounce, which has been discussed a lot, um, particularly earlier in the year, is starting to wear off. And I guess that was always going to shave a few points off a Tory party lead. Perhaps when you look at support from Tory members specifically dropping rather than the general public. I said before, you know, you've got these these several issues where the government, Boris Johnson, has promised X, Y and Z because it's seen as doing right by the public, particularly voters in the North and the Midlands who lent the Tories their votes in 2019. But a lot of these things aren't massively popular with Tory party members and Tory MPs, whether it be sort of um, green bold policy which seeks to dictate how people um, behave in, in their own homes or whether it be, I saw a report rec- in the last few days about this, the animal sentience bill and how there are cabinet ministers like Jacob Rees-Mogg um, and Mark Harper who aren't really comfortable with the bill because they think it might, I think to quote them, be hijacked by activists or might even be a front to um, country sports. So now as politics starts to shift back to what we recognise as normal before the pandemic, perhaps even before Brexit, um, I think things are going to get a bit harder uh, for the Prime Minister. And what I did notice, I was looking at an opinion poll which came out on Saturday night, which put the PM on his worst approval rating since he entered Downing Street. If you look kind of below the headline figures and look within the data, just 18% of people, of respondents, said they understood what levelling up actually means. And also Hmm. 50% say they don't feel the government is delivering on levelling up. Uh, But it probably is worth saying as well that although the PM is suffering these drops in support, in the same opinion poll I just just referenced, uh, Keir Starmer also suffered his worst approval rating since becoming Labour leader. So while the Prime Minister and the Conservatives are suffering this drop in support, I don't think you can really say, or at least I've not seen evidence to suggest that the Labour Party is really capitalising on it. It's great times for none of the above. He's doing really well. Um, Justin, um, the idea that Liz Truss is top of a list of popularity and anything really kind of 
boggles the mind. 88.6% approval rating. Um, another member's poll found her second favourite to replace Johnson after Sunak as a Conservative leader. I mean, reading the runes of this is really difficult. What, what do you think can be making her so popular with Conservative Party members? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I mean, that's a hell of a result. I mean, that's sort of, you know, late period Mugabe sort of poll ratings there, which mm. you, know, you wouldn't have expected. Um, my hunch is people often say about Johnson, you know, what people are opposed to miss is that his supporters like him because he makes them feel good. And I think in a less obvious way than Johnson, Truss also embodies this in that what she seems to trade in is this kind of really simplistic optimism. You know, for somebody who deals with trade, and trade is this absolute sort of ball-breaking, take-no-prisoners world, you know, sort of devil take the hindmost. And she seems to absolutely skate over all of that completely. And the only time you seem to see her pop up, which seems quite sort of judiciously timed, is when she's kind of perkily announcing that we've struck some deal to send five pallets of Scotch eggs to Newfoundland or somewhere. Um and she seems to have this sort of almost zen-like ability to just block out the grim reality and convince people that the path this country has embarked on because of their decision, very directly, is not just a sensible and enjoyable one, but that if we all just show a bit more willing, it'll all be fine because we're British. And there's something about her entire delivery which embodies that. It's kind of school teacher when you're halfway through a terrible school trip. And it's like, look, you all asked to go here to this terrible theme park. I'm just trying to keep the balloon in the air. And I think she does that very effectively in a way that obviously connects very strongly with Conservative members. The Conservative Party is looking at probably a significant rebellion on vaccine passports when uh, Parliament returns to start September. Um, some 43 Tory MPs have signed a letter saying they'll they'll oppose it. Um, you know, we've looked long and hard for a kind of make or break issue on this government uh, and they never seem to really turn up. Do you th- How serious would that be, a rebellion in that vein? I mean, I'm always loath to get my hopes up about this stuff because it feels like on every issue for the last sort of year and a half, we've had this thing of, you know, they're going to rebel, this will be the one, this is the red line. And then for the most part, you know, they fold at the last minute. There's also, there is still the issue of, you know, the majority is so large that they can soak up, you know, a fair degree of, you know, restive sentiment. So, I mean, I think what we've seen throughout this parliament is there's been a sort of steady core of rebellious MPs, usually between about 45 to 60, who've pushed around, pushed back on various issues around coronavirus. It was, you know, the tiering system, the 10 pm curfew on pubs. And you feel, I think it's it's sort of partly this new intake of MPs, especially ones in the north, who you feel like they were elected on a very different set of priorities to the ones in the south and to more traditional MPs. Um, But I also wonder if, to some degree, it's also just a rebadging of the Brexit malcontents. You know, they're complaining Mm. as much as they ever were, but have really just changed hats from Europe to COVID to, you know, social liberty. But ultimately, it feels like the same preoccupations. It's, you know, red tape and opposition to nuance and complexity. And essentially just that mindset of being happier when you're complaining about stuff. Yasmin, you you get to watch our politics with the luxury of someone who can get out whenever she likes. Um, What's been your take on the arc of Johnson so far? I mean, it's almost as if as politics unfreezes, it's like his his kind of carapace of protection has gone. Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing that sort of I think it's worth noting is that, you know, Johnson isn't the only leader experiencing a slouch in support, albeit perhaps not so sharply. I mean, I think Biden has in recent weeks seen you know, a very slight decline in, in approval, which has coincided with um, a dip in how Americans 
view his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, which kind of goes into all sorts of other things like, you know, vaccination uptake and and the arrival of the Delta variant. Um, but, you know, even the internationally adored Jacinda Ardern I was seeing has seen her popularity teeter um, mm. over the country's slow vaccina- vaccination efforts. So uh, I think it was Adam who'd mentioned the sort of vaccination bump. Um, but I think the factor that that kind of stands out to me is perhaps as important, if not more important, is how the conservatives are polling relative to labor. Um, and, you know, the Westminster insiders on this podcast can certainly correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I don't I'm not aware if there's ever been a point amid this crisis where the conservatives haven't been leading in terms of voter preference. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure how much that metric speaks to, um, you know, if it speaks to more than just party identification rather than public mm-hmm. sentiment. But I mean, I think, you know, that sort of, at least to me, kind of speaks to the Teflon nature of this prime minister. Um, and, and perhaps even, you know, also indicative of kind of a failure on the opposition's part to really offer the public a substantive alternative, particularly at a time where it feels like, God, we could use one. Um, um, I mean, also, I think just kind of going back to Johnson's popularity, something that I keep coming back to with regard to the vaccine rollout is something that my colleague Tom McTague wrote back, I think, at the beginning of this year, which was that, you know, the country's vaccination drive may leave more of a lasting memory than the horror that preceded it. You know, the fact that it doesn't feel like, you know, they're on the brink is kind of indicative of how that might just be true. Last week, Apple announced that the next updates of its operating systems will introduce features that scan photo libraries on iPhones and iPads in the US for known images of child sexual abuse. The announcement won praise from child protection groups, but privacy campaigners have warned that it risks crossing a line and could have dangerous consequences. In addition, Apple's also revealed that it'll examine the contents of end-to-end encrypted messages for the first time. Um, Yasmin, Apple's going to use a, a tool called Neural Match to scan photo libraries. Do, do we know how this works? Yeah, so as I understand it, the screening process effectively takes place before photos are even uploaded to the company's iCloud storage. Um, and basically what Apple says that they're going to do with this technology is they're going to effectively scan images and compare them to a database um, that is owned by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, and if there are any matches, Apple is going to effectively review and report those images if they're in fact confirmed to you know, have evidence of, of child abuse. And if if that's the case, um, then not only will obviously, um, you know, the the authorities be notified, but also the user's account will be disabled. Um, and they're also, I think Apple said that in addition to that, they're going to be scanning users' encrypted messages um, that are sent and received using iMessage, um, which I don't think results in the authorities getting notified, but it does notify parents if their children are receiving or sending explicit photos. Um, so it's it's kind of a really, I mean, I, I think particularly in the US where iMessage is, is used more um, certainly than here. I think that's, you know, a, a pretty seismic change and one that, as I, as far as I can tell, has been um, welcomed by by advocates or child mm. protection advocates. Well, lots of privacy campaigners have, have been very concerned about it. The security researcher Matthew Green said it's going to break a dam over surveillance and governments will begin demanding this kind of scanning for everyone, not just for 
obvious, uh, you know, criminal and sexual exploitative content like that, but that this this software can be repurposed to scan any photograph. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a concern. And, and I think that's kind of the risk that comes with technologies like these, you know, you, <laughs> even if obviously the, the aim here is, is arguably one that a lot of people could get behind, there's this, you know, concern that repressive regimes might see this as an opportunity to say, hang on, while you're at it, while you're scanning photos for for, for um, evidence of child abuse, why don't you look for protesters or or dissidents and, and things like that? Now, I, mean, I think the onus is obviously on Apple to um, whether to to reject um, those requests or to comply with them. I think we'd hope, obviously, that Apple would would not utilize that technology um, to, to kind of aid repressive regimes in that way. I mean, as far as we know now, this is this is technology that I only think is being rolled out in the United States. So hmm. whether that goes kind of internationally or, or is used kind of in a more broader context, I think remains to be seen. Um, but, but I think I could certainly understand that the privacy concerns that come with it, but, you know, there have also been experts who have said, Hey, look, I mean, yeah, there's going to be concerns with these sorts of things in every instance, but it's worth it in this instance because of, of the subject matter that we're dealing with. Adam, the, the standard response to um, sort of expanding security technology or expanding surveillance is, well, if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to fear. Um, nobody wants to be, uh, you know, seen to be defending abusers. But I mean, does that kind of, does that caveat stand up here? If you've done nothing wrong, you've nothing to fear? I, I guess it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, I mean, I've not read a suggestion or seen a suggestion that this is going to be rolled out in the UK anytime soon. Or if the idea is floated, it'd be interesting to see how um, how that's received by particularly the Tory party, I guess, the Liberal Democrats as well. Because as you said, you know, there, there is that sort of perennial, almost philosophical debate about the level of intrusion there should be into um, or how much access perhaps um, a, a corporation or, or a government should have in, in one's private life. But I think as we sort of touched upon earlier, um, I think what's interesting with this Tory party is that particularly among MPs who were elected in 2019, younger younger MPs would probably be supportive of, of what's being rolled out um, in the US, whereas perhaps some of the more old school Tory MPs who've been there a while, um, perhaps Steve Baker, etc. You know, so I don't have to tell you guys the sorts yes. of MPs I'm, I'm talking about uh, would probably be a lot more perhaps um, hostile um, towards uh, something like that happening um, in this country. I guess it'd be interesting to see how it how it polls with the British public. I mean, I think what I'm about to say might be a, it could be the subject of a whole new podcast episode, but I. <laughs> Well, when I think about polling on vaccine passports, for example, the overwhelming public response to these debates about civil liberties versus um, certification, which to me just seemed to be there. We're not that bothered, really. We're nowhere near hmm. as bothered as um, the MPs in Parliament who are being really exercised, getting really exercised over this. So, you know, I'd wait, I'd probably wager on the general public generally being quite supportive um, of something like what's being rolled out in the US and being replicated um, over here, if, if, if it did come to that. It does go to the kind of the massive strength of transnational tech giants, though. And Boris mm. Johnson's key supporters in the mail and the Telegraph absolutely loathe the tech giants and frequently run front page stories about how dreadful they are. 
why has Johnson's government been doing so little to please them on this particular topic? I mean, there's there's plans for a digital markets unit to promote competition, in, and but there isn't, you know, there's no sort of plans for independent Brexit Britain to go about, I don't know, uh, trying to, you know, trying to break off Google from the global uh, Google Corporation or any kind of anti antitrust thing. They seem to be completely indolent on it. Mm. And it's not just on this, is it? I'm thinking recently back to um, when uh, the three England players received awful racist yeah. abuse. And um, again, the government was facing questions of why why the hell are you not doing more to put pressure on Twitter, Instagram, etc., to up its game when it comes to this sort of thing? Who knows? I mean... Um, does the government not want to upset um, these big corporations? How much power does government actually have um, to, to shape the practices of, of, of these corporations? It, it has been pretty clear that, that the, the free speech contingent in the Conservative Party is is quite against interference with uh, online speech as well as offline speech. David Davis mm. warned that the online safety bill that's been going through the works for ages could end up being authoritarian by accident. Yes, absolutely. There is clearly a, a, a significant grouping within the Conservative Party who 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 were united on this. No, you're, you're absolutely right, and that's one of the parliamentary intra-party obstacles the government mm-hmm. Boris Johnson is going to have to navigate if he is going to do something serious on this, even with his um, eighty-seat majority. Justin, just to circle back to uh, Apple and their, their their proposals on this. I mean, like I say, nobody likes to seem like they're siding with child abusers, but the actual methodology of doing of, of doing this monitoring it would inevitably involve referring images to a human moderator. They're detected automatically and then they go to a human to be assessed to make sure that, you know, it's not flagging up a picture of somebody's kid in the bath and that kind of thing. Now, you've written about this, haven't you? Yes. I uh, I did a piece about eight years ago on a group called CEOP, who the Child Exploitation Online Protection Group part of the home office uh it took months to set up we eventually went in there spent some time with them and what really really came across was it is an astonishingly you know laborious methodical process and they run it so so carefully you know i mean these people i think every I think it was every 12 weeks you know they're pulled out for sort of psychiatric assessment they'll work at these monitors where they're set up with a kind of they have this sort of light refraction thing, so nobody walking past can see anything that's on your screen, so no one's exposed to imagery uh, accidentally. And, you know, I could be wrong, but you sort of start thinking, well, given what we know about how the human moderation element has been run by tech companies previously, which effectively seems to be farming things out to call centres in the Philippines, um, I'm not entirely comfortable that they would run the human elements of this process as diligently. Mm. And also, privacy is supposed to be Apple's brand, isn't it? Privacy, that's iPhone, is the slogan. They just introduced um, an app tracking transparency uh, function, which spotlights who's tracking you on your iPhone and gives you the option to stop it. Um, Again, you know, nobody ever went bust by having a go at, uh, you know, at child abusers, but opening up the question of of, um, scanning the contents on your phone, could that damage that aspect of the Apple brand? I really think it could, and especially amongst younger consumers. So I worked on a big research report last year about digital habits, digital life amongst Gen Z, and it was incredible, firstly, how tech-savvy they were about exactly what was going on in their phones, on their laptops, whatever. Um, you know, they were that idea of being fully digital native, but also how clear-eyed they were about it. They had none of that sort of wide-eyed tech utopian idea. You know, they viewed these things as kind of a necessary evil in their life, 
And they had a very, very strong sense of how their identity was something of not just a real social value, but also an economic value to companies and brands. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about this idea of fluid identities among younger people. But the conclusion I actually came to at the end of this report was that it makes perfect sense to live like that if you constantly feel like your very online existence is being exploited and surveilled and utilized and mined for its value by people. And, you know, I think what these companies, I think they are aware of this, but they really need to remind themselves of is this is an incredibly interconnected, globally aware generation. You know, it only takes one bad actor to misuse technology somewhere in the world. And the assumption amongst younger people will be that everyone closer to home is doing the same thing. Now, when will the woke left-wing council culture legion stop victimising innocent people, like Spain's General Franco, for instance? The country's left coalition government has passed legislation to criminalise support for General Franco, including fines of up to €150,000 for glorifying the dictator and the Spanish Civil War, and also a ban on the Franco Society. Spain's right-wing press is describing it as Spanish council culture. But what exactly is Spain's new law of historical memory? We spoke to someone who knows. Hello, my name is Alex Quiroga. I'm a reader in Spanish history at Newcastle University and a research professor at the Complutense University in Madrid. Well, the law of historical memory, it's a law that has been passed by the Spanish government that contains a number of measures to make sure that the propaganda of Francoist ideas is not allowed anymore. People are going to be fine if they promote Francoist ideas or the memory of the Franco dictatorship. The law will ban, for instance, the Francisco Franco Foundation, which is a foundation for the memory of the Franco dictatorship. This is something, of course, unthinkable in, say, Germany or Italy. We cannot even begin to envisage the idea of having a Hitler foundation. And that particular foundation, which, by the way, was was funded with public money, is going to be dismantled, is going to be banned. What happened in the case of Spain, if you compared its case to some other European countries, is that the Franco dictatorship unlike Mussolini's or Hitler's dictatorships, actually continued for a number of decades. It didn't finish in 1945. That meant that the memory of the dictatorship has been quite different to the one of other fascist uh, regimes. The key here is that in the 1970s, once Franco died, the actual transition to democracy was made out of a consensus between Francoist forces and democratic forces. And part of that consensus, that part of that agreement was what is called the Pact of Oblivion. So, so some sort of, don't mention the war uh, sort of thing, um, some sort of, uh, we're not going to deal with the past. So there was no real revision of the dictatorship during the first decades of the democratic regime. The most important thing of this new legislation, I think, is that is going to be some sort of justice with regards of all 
the victims of the Frank dictatorship. Precisely because of that pact of oblivion, um, which actually translated into a real amnesty during the transition to democracy, what happened was that all the Francoist crimes, and we're talking about roughly over 100,000 people who died because they were killed by the Francoist regime after the war, all those who were tortured, all those who were sent to concentration camps never received any sort of justice. What the legislation is doing now is somehow to acknowledge the suffering of all those victims under Franco. Of course, it's too late to put in front of a, of a tribunal to all these um, Francoist criminals, but at least the legislation is going to acknowledge that those crimes happened and those um, Republicans that were killed by the Francois were innocent victims. Yasmin, uh, Alex, who we were just speaking to, suggests that this is actually the opposite of cancel culture and historical revisionism, because it's actually acknowledging the 100,000 people killed by the Franco regime since 1939. What do you think? Is it, is it, is it right to, uh, to prevent and prescribe this particular type of opinion, much as Germany does with the Nazi regime? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say when I listening to Alex, I mean, it kind of felt like, you know, there's certainly precedent for, for doing this. And I think, you know, given the extent of Franco's atrocities, it's understandable. I guess the question that I have is, you know, whether this is the best mechanism to do that, you know, does it help Franco's victims and their families any more than, say, building a monument in their honor or indeed removing, you know, any sort of monument or public recognition of Franco. I, I think if I'm not mistaken, they've, they Spain has already kind of gone through things like removing um, street, street names and, and stuff that, that allude to him. Um, I guess if I had to like fall, fall, uh, take a position on, on it, I, I don't necessarily think it's a, a bad thing. I, I can understand why the country would, would want to do it. And certainly if there was kind of, you know, widespread support for this sort of thing, I would get it. But I think I, from a free freedom of speech perspective, would want to understand what constitutes glorification. Um, I think that's something that, that would probably need to be addressed. And perhaps it already has been, but I, I'm just not aware of it. When he was Boris Johnson's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings' first pandemic hire wasn't a health expert, but a well-connected firm to help with polling on COVID-19 and attitudes around it. Any mid-range brand knows that the fastest way to get a quick news story into the papers is to commission a spurious survey. But for many, the takeaway from big votes in the past half decade, Trump, Brexit, the 2017 general election, even the Biden presidential election, was that we should never trust polls again. So do polls and surveys wag the dog of our politics? Do we pay too much attention? Um, Adam, mm. when Cummings pushed through this deal with Public First, uh, it's £580,000 of public money to a, a vote leave connected company. It did show the centrality of polling to modern government. In your experience, as somebody who's dealing with these people every day, do they obsess over polling a little bit too much to the expense of leadership, perhaps? I think certainly why this conversation is partic- and this subject is particularly sort of um, pertinent at the moment is because we do have a government which is even by uh, the usual standards of a government, is absolutely obsessed with public opinion. Um, We have a prime minister who, you know, this will come as a huge revelation, is absolutely obsessed with being popular. And you you just look at some of the U-turns, some of the decisions. I mean, to me, um, I, I think how the government responded to the European Super League when that huge story broke. Hmm. I've seen footage of Boris Johnson on Question Time from years ago, sort of making the case for um, 
free market principles in football and how takeovers, I can't remember which particular takeover he was talking about at the time, but how he was generally supportive of takeovers. Suddenly we have this government led by Boris Johnson, which is incredibly um, interventionist when it, when it comes to football to keep big business out of it. So what I'm saying is that we have a prime minister and a government which is absolutely obsessed with polling. Um, what I will say is that I still think polling is important. I, I, you know, I know, I know that polling has been derided last few years, particularly because of Brexit and the um, recent elections. But I, I still think it's an important tool. Really, outside of elections, it's our only real opportunity to see how people are thinking about things. And I also think, as well, there is this narrative now, which has been in play for a few years, which is polling is useless and it's always mm. wrong we've kind of casually ignored when polling's actually been quite decent. Well, Jasmine, let, let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, the pollsters were panned throughout the Trump era for getting things wrong. But actually, most of those supposed poll disasters, including Brexit, you know, most of these big pollsters got it wrong moments, were well within the margin of error that the pollsters themselves had spotlighted, weren't they? Yeah, well, I, I think the difficulty you have there is that margin of errors don't really make it into headlines. And also, I mean, I think these are all contests that were quite close, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I think that's also kind of part of the difficulty. Um, I mean, I think when it comes to the US election and US polling, um, obviously 2016, kind of, I think for a lot of people, they felt really blindsided um, by, by the polls and the results. And, and I think for for the pollsters, 2020 was kind of seen as a chance to sort of redeem themselves. And, and in a way, I, I think from what I recall, polls were showing that that Biden um, was was more likely to win, whether he did so by, you know, the, the fraction that that the pollsters set out. Um, I, I'm not so sure. In fact, I think there was actually um, a recent report from the American Association for Public Opinion Research, which found that, you know, even though 2020, it kind of called it right that, you know, um, the national surveys of the 2020 presidential election were the least accurate in 40 years. Um, and, and the state polls were the worst in at least two decades. Pollsters overestimating the support for Biden, perhaps under, underestimating the support for Trump. Um, I think because the election was drawn out to the extent that it was because of mail-in voting and caused by the pandemic that, you know, it felt quite quite like a nail biter for, for those first day or two. I try to block out the memories of that election. So I can't, <laughs> I can't exactly recall the, 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 the exact, um, spe the specifics I should say, but, but I think a big problem that pollsters have faced, I mean, I agree with Adam that I think polls are very important. And I, I think, you know, for better or worse, they're, they're the way that we gauge what people are thinking and, and how people feel about certain issues. Um, I think one big problem that polls have come into, and, and I think there are probably of many, but this is certainly one that stands out, is that, um, you know, key groups of people don't answer polls in the first place. Um, and I think that's obviously really problematic when, you know, group when those groups, um, you know, like the silent majority in the US end up being deciding factors in contests. So I, I think certainly that the moment of reckoning for, for pollsters hasn't ended. Um, but, but I think given sort of all the contests that we've experienced in recent years, people probably do look to them with a bit more hesitation um, than, than perhaps they would have before. 
Justin, I sometimes wonder whether we pay too much attention to sort of straight up government polls uh, about, you know, will you vote for X and who's doing a good job and less towards the kind of attitudinal stuff that maybe sort of gets more to what people think, um, you know, what their kind of underlying attitudes are. YouGov is, you know, huge on this kind of psychological modelling and comes out with gems that, you know, just absolutely fit with what you, you know, what you would expect. Uh, you know, all male partnerships on Strictly Come Dancing, 45% of Labour voters strongly support, only 15% of Conservatives, you know, should Olympic medal winners be allowed to make political or social protests while we're on the medal podium 79 percent of conservatives think they shouldn't 52 percent of labor voters think they should be able to and my personal favorite do you prefer table service in the pub or not those in favor of going to that leavers come out on top 30 percent and 22 percent remainers leavers um you know prefer to go to the bar more often than remainers do you think we should pay more attention to these kind of uh you know very nearly subconscious attitudinal ideas rather than just do you like boris johnson I absolutely I love that one on the uh, the bar detail, and, and I think you're right. I think there, you know, I, I do a lot of my day job is in uh, sort of creative strategy and marketing, and you know, I understand why we lean on these things so heavily. And the history of this stuff in the industry is really interesting in terms of who's driven it. And I think what's really pushed it in the last few years, I think you know, for most of my life, what we always have is this sort of intent attempt to impose logic and order on quite a chaotic system. And for most of my sort of upbringing, that was done through ideology. You know, does socialism work? Does capitalism work? Through the labour years, it was the idea of, you know, the deregulated markets and, you know, the hidden hand and all this. And I think post the financial crash, the thing we've taken more refuge in is the idea that data can tell us everything. And that's dovetailed obviously with digital culture and is having more data than ever before. But as you say, when everyone's got the same data and the same numbers, everyone's got your club card, everyone's got your Waitrose card, you actually need to look for these things that are more impressionistic that I think can be more revealing. And my favourite one of those recently was the uh, survey that was going around today about um, between Americans and the British, which animal do you think you could have in a fight? <laughs> and uh, a full 17% of Americans believe they could beat a chimpanzee in a fight. A chimpanzee? 17% of Americans think they could have a chimp with their bare hands, only 10% in the UK, where uh, a full 12%, so one in every 10 people, think they could have a wolf in a fight. But I think if you were to rephrase that question of what does a wolf look like, and 12% of them would think it looked like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon wolf that they could probably beat in a fight. I, don't, I reckon if you live in America, you know what a wolf looks like, <laughs> and you know that it basically tear your voice box out in one move, but... I feel like in some way that I can't quite put my finger on living in a country where, you know, between 12 and 20 percent of the population think they could beat a chimp and a wolf in a straight fight somehow explains the mindset which has led America to its current state. On last week's podcast, we talked about university life during COVID and how many students feel they're not getting what they paid for. But not all listeners agreed on the idea of refunds for tuition fees. Here's listener Patrick Hunt who works in university admissions. A common mistake made when talking about the cost of university education is to conflate headline tuition fees with the actual cost to the graduate, and to talk about students being burdened by debt. Bailiffs aren't running around collecting payments from graduates, and the loan gets written off after 30 years anyway. In 2021, graduates only made student loan payments when they earned over £27,000, and then they paid 9% in low payments on any income above this. The government predicts that only 25% of students are going to pay off their loan. And if you pay off your loan, it's because you've been a high earner since you graduated. So in a majority of cases, university is more expensive for those who've had the best careers since graduating. 
If you earn the UK median wage, which is about £31,000, you will pay off £380 of your loan this year. Over your loan term, this would be about £11,000, and then the rest would be written off. However, the average student graduates with £45,000 in student debt. This shows the difference between what you borrow and what you'll actually end up paying. Conversations about refunds for students this year for fees are misleading. Refunds would only benefit the richest students, those who are going to pay off their loan in full. And then they would only see the benefit in 20 to 30 years' time. A vast majority of students would see no benefit at all. Plus, you'd have the added bonus of blowing a huge hole in already stretched university finances, putting the quality of teaching over the next couple of years in jeopardy. Students haven't got what they were promised when they first applied to university. However, we've got to talk about university finance correctly. A tuition fee refund would be an expensive way of helping the rich. Instead, maybe we should be asking the government to provide targeted support to universities so that they can help all students catch up on what they missed. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you, Justin Quirk. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks to our special guest, Adam Payne. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us to Yasmin Sohan. Thanks for having me. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to help us keep going, then please do consider backing us on Patreon. You'll be funding our producers and our studio and are helping us to bring you the good stuff on the regular. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You'll get the podcast early and access to our live show on Zoom too. And supporters get a shout-out on the show. Here are some now. Best wishes from me to Judith Lohman, LJ and Yvonne Riedel-Brown. Many thanks from me to Matthew Dickey, David S and Kevin Lee. And finally, best wishes from me to Keo Mathuin, Melissa Miguel and Daniel Denby. We'll see you next time. Bunker was presented and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranevich and theme music was from Kenny Dickens. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.